All right, thanks for joining us. We're on podcast number 33. And uh, tonight, well, tonight for me, we're going to talk about incident action plans and the rope rescue or the technical rescue incident. And before everybody does the big head shake, eye roll, roll tunes out of this, it's one of these things where I've spent, you know, the last couple decades plus in the fire service. We go to your standard structure fire. I'm expected to produce an IEP as an officer. I'm expected to sit down and do a bit of a risk assessment, come up with my strategies and tactics, and deploy my crews appropriately. We go to a hazmat incident. We have our eight-step process that, you know, dovetails in quite nicely into incident action planning and your um, incident management systems, the IEPs that we use. At structure fires also dovetail quite nicely into incident management systems. Yet a lot of the technical rescues that I've seen, they're kind of almost like a free-for-all. And it's not just my department or departments in my general geographical area. It's departments that we've trained with. And this is industrial teams. These are fire rescue teams. These are military teams. And so it kind of got me thinking as to, you know, why? Why does this gap exist? So that's what we're going to chat about tonight. We're going to uh, go back to interviewing some people in the next podcast. But for this evening, we're going to look at incident action plans and the fire uh, rescue incident kind of thing. So first of all, the incident action plan. Do we even need to do one? I mean, we're sitting there, we're going to our technical rescue incident. Well, just pulling straight from the JPRs. Uh, on rope, for instance, NFPA, JPRs, job performance requirements, 521, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, perform the size up of a rescue incident, obtain information required to develop an incident action plan. Oh, that's pretty clear that the NFPA standard indicates at the operations level that you need to be developing incident action plans. When you get into the technician level, Direct a team in the operation of a rope rescue system to remove a victim stranded or clinging onto a feature, suspended in their harness, suspended in a high-angle environment. Um, so a lot of this stuff, direct the team in the operation of a rope system to move, move a suspended rescue load along a horizontal path. So it's definitely out there. There's definitely the requirement to create an incident action plan, to have strategies, to have tactics. So this brings up, I guess, the first point of conversation. Should the operations officer at a technical rescue incident be an officer? A lot of departments default to an instructor who might be a senior firefighter, might be very well versed in the technical rescue aspects of that, but are they well versed in the creation of an incident action plan? Or is this going to have to become more of a, Team command is sometimes used, not really a unified command. Everybody's from the same organization generally in this case. But where the person that has the ability to make that incident action plan and has that bit of knowledge is able then to tap into the subject matter expert. Or do you just have the incident commander or an operations officer create a general IAP and have that individual who's our subject matter expert working down at that team level, whether that be running a task force or 
whether that be running individual crews or however that's laid out in your organization. But an incident action plan is definitely required for a rope rescue or any other technical rescue incident. So that puts us back to, let's look, put our incident action planning hat back on. I think pretty much universally in the fire service, the priorities of our incident are life safety, fire department, the affected individual civilian, and then the general population at large around that, the incident stabilization, and then followed by property conservation. So once again, life safety, incident stabilization, property conservation. So this brings up a couple of interesting points for the technical rescue end of it. If we're talking life safety to begin with, we get back into this, what risks are we being paid to take and what risks are we not? So there's you know different ways of doing rescue around the world. I've done some podcasts before. I've done some blogs before, all in regards to basically risk assessments around this particular topic. And to paraphrase a blog I did back in 2016 called Speed Versus Safety. It's up on our website if you're interested in reading the whole thing. I basically chatted in regards to some of the overseas teams versus North American teams in regards to risk aversion. And I basically say here, in the fire service, we will talk, we will risk very little for little gain, we will risk more for greater gain. And there's definitely a conversation now as has the fire service become too risk averse. So we take a look at this from our incident action planning perspective. Because when you look at an incident action plan, we basically look at a few components. The first one being the size up, then the next one being that acceptability of risk. So I'll back the bus up a little bit and just chat briefly about the size up. When you go to your technical rescue incident, and I think when we get into some of the trench, some of the USAR, some of the you know structural collapse, your confined space, we do have a tendency of sizing them up a little better than our standard rope call. And maybe it's because our standard rope call, generally we can see the individual hanging there and things aren't moving a little bit fast instead of taking that you know, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, you know, 90 seconds we need in order to get our feet underneath us and start creating that plan by conducting that size up. And the same questions we ask when we roll up to a fire scene, we can certainly ask when we roll up to our incident. What's happened prior to me getting there? And if we take our standard rope rescue scene, obviously something is, somebody has fallen or they're hanging on a lifeline. Let's just, for random conversation points for this podcast, just take a look and go, hey, we've got people up on some scaffolding. We're in Edmonton the other week where it's getting all windy. We're going to have to pull these people off. So what's happened prior to my arrival? Yeah, the layperson answer, somebody's hanging off of the scaffolding. It was a swing stage, actually, in that case. But what caused that swing stage to get to that state that that person ended up hanging from their dorsal D. Well, we've got some wind. We've got a swing stage that's moving around. We might have some integrity issues into that swing stage. We got some hazards into smashing into the glass in the side of that building. 
These are all things that we need to make sure that we're picking up and putting into our risk assessment. One of the other ones I was taught is by continue, what is continuing to happen as time goes by. Generally, when we look at a fire where the fire is getting worse, right? In this case here, what is continuing to happen? In that particular video, if you take a look on the Facebook that was happening around then, I think it was on most of the rescue feeds with this swing stage swinging all over the place outside of this uh, glass building. So what's continuing to happen? These people are going to continue to hang there. Now we start getting into some patient considerations. If the patient hangs there too long, we're going to get into harness and tooth pathology issues or whatever your department terms that particular type of uh, shock for your EMS providers. Just call it harness and tooth pathology for lack of a better or other term here. What will continue to happen without our intervention? You know, there's that old saying that all fires will eventually burn themselves out, which is true in probably 90% of the cases. When we get into a technical rescue incident, however, when we have a live victim hanging from a dorsal D, what will continue to happen without our intervention is somebody's going to end up dead. So we end up getting some extra pressure on us because a lot of these incidents are public. Most of them are now. You've got your cell phone, you know, videographers out there, your YouTube bloggers, not to mention your standard mainstream media that are going to show up and definitely put some pressure into the incident commander who may or may not be the person that's the subject matter expert we spoke to earlier about mitigating this problem quickly. So based on our you know, size up, and I would add one more into this, grab somebody that knows what they're doing or what's going on. When we go to the structure fire, it's one of the things we always have when we look at like apartment buildings. Grab that manager that can deal with the HVAC system. When we go even to a residential structure fire, you know, grab the first adult. How many people are left in the building? Where do the fire start? You know, these common questions that we are just ingrained into us from all the years of doing this job. We want to grab that person there, that foreman, that supervisor. What kind of ethylmethyl death is in the space? Where did you see them last? You know, you know what's going on here in regards to this scaffold? Do we, is there any way we can tie this down? You know, those critical questions that are going to help you now define that acceptability of risk. And when we start talking about risk, most of it's framed in that firefighting mentality. We'll risk a lot to save a lot. We'll risk little to save little. Where this gets turned on its head a little bit and where we see a lot of this over in places like Europe and back to that speed versus safety, if we have an empty house and we burn it to the ground and just do a defensive attack, in today's world, the fire officer is really not going to get in a lot of trouble for that. There's a million ways we could justify why we felt it was too dangerous to make entry. We knew there was no one in there. And... In reality, the insurance is ripping it down and building it back up anyways. Now, when we've got our person in a confined space and it's a viable rescue, or we've got a person buried under rubble and it's a viable rescue, or we have a person hanging off of our swing stage here in Edmonton and it's a viable rescue, all of a sudden, speed does play a part in this. And we start looking at this risk matrix through a different window. We can't really stop and do nothing. 
the situation will get worse to the point where someone's going to die, much like if there's someone trapped in that house fire. When we roll up and someone's trapped in that house fire, a lot of times people, depending on your department's SOPs, will allow you to transfer command to the next coming unit or not take command or go tactical and do something like vent vent enter isolated search, which are tactics designed specifically to rescue people from that specific incident. And all of a sudden, we're risking a lot to save a lot. And this brings up this old conversation as, are we doing rope rescue or technical rescue too safe in North America? Now, As I mentioned in this blog, a lot of these overseas teams, they're picked or selected from the fire service. And a lot of these fire services are military. They're actually a branch of the armed forces, or they are much more paramilitary than we are. And even if they're paramilitary, they're getting their training and their thought processes and their procedures from the larger departments around that are military. And so they're going back into that mindset. Now, back when I was in the military, as everybody likes to joke around, we, you know, we signed that blank check that says up to and including my life. And that's what the army or the armed forces of countries demand of their citizens that join their armed forces because of the situations they're going to find themselves in. Now, is it fair to ask a public servant, a firefighter, an industrial rescuer now, maybe not a public servant. That's the guy that's, you know, working the laydown yard or, or running the equipment over on, you know, the roll press that's now part of that ERT. Is it the same ask to them to risk their life or lay down their life in order to affect that rescue? I think a lot of people would say, you know, in the public service, no, it's not really acceptable for us to die, to rescue somebody else. What if there's four or five people there? Where does the balance weigh out? What if there's seven or 10 people and we lose one firefighter and we save 10 civilians? Is that a fair balance? And I'm not trying to take a side on this. I'm just trying to promote some conversation and discussion. And I'd love to get some feedback on this in order to ascertain where people think with this. So, I write in the article, the funny thing about risk aversion is it's very subjective to the person and persons that are around the risk. If I run into a burning building to save a victim and perish, my wife, maybe, well, more likely than not, would say it was too risky. Probably shouldn't have gone in. If I don't go in to that structure and that civilian dies, the family's going to say, we were probably too risk adverse because we allowed their loved one to perish. My employer, depending on the situation, may go left or may go right with that answer. So depending on where you sit and how that you know, risk aversion or lack thereof affects you subjectively is obviously going to create how you are reacting to that particular situation. So we go back to our example of the person hanging from their dorsal D on the side of the building in Edmonton. And I'm not criticizing Edmonton Fire. They pulled them down, I think, with a ladder truck. I, and I specifically didn't look at what they did there because I didn't want to 
you know, this isn't an after-action debrief. And if anybody from Edmonton Fire is listening to this and wants to do a debrief on podcast about that call, feel free to drop me a dime. I'd love to do it. But this isn't a debrief of that. I just, it was a recent incident that most people probably saw on social media. So can we sit back and do nothing? Well, the answer is obviously no. What if we couldn't get to that person with the ladder truck? It's a windy day. Can we tie that down somehow? Are we going to have to go and mitigate that hazard first? And now this gets into, after our conducting of size up, this acceptability of risk and a risk assessment that's a part of every incident action plan. Do I have to send two rescuers or workers now, firefighters, over that edge to somehow try to secure that swing stage before I can attempt a rescue? Thinking back to the priorities that are generally outlined in North American Fire Service, life safety. First thing is the safety of my rescuers. So putting people over there to secure that down so it's not swinging around, does that keep my rescuers safe? Check. Does it keep my patients safe? Yeah, absolutely. It keeps them from getting thrashed about and it also provides for a more expedient rescue when we get to that stage of the operation because they're not swinging around all over the place. But let's back the bus up even further. Everybody can kind of see that. We do training for a lot of organizations where the first people hit the edge, lay down, look over the edge and ascertain what's going on. If we were really following life safety priorities, rescuer first, Would we not be creating some sort of fall protection system on the roof to tie those people off before we get to that edge? Now we go back to this speed versus safety. Is it safe enough to crawl to the edge and lay down and look over? Which is faster than rigging lifelines to get to the edge to look over. And I'm not leaning one way or another. Once again, I'm not trying to formulate an opinion on this. I'm throwing out conversation pieces and I'd love to get some feedback. If there's people that listen to this that study IAPs or, you know, assessments of risk a little bit more or have some, you know, working knowledge of studies on this, I'd love to hear from you because now we're getting into this subjective world. Guys getting thrown around, thrashed around on the bottom of this, slamming into the side of this window Does every second count? Absolutely. Does every minute count? Absolutely. Does every second and every minute count if we're rescuing someone from a structure fire? Absolutely. So why are we willing to take more risk on the rope rescue call than we are on the structure fire? On the structure fire, no one would be going in the door without some sort of action plan, even if it's just VEIS but we're still going to ladder. We're still going to have a hose line for protection. We're still going to close the door to isolate. We're still going to have a spotter on that ladder. We're still going to do those things to protect our people in the best case possible. Yet now we get to this rope rescue call and standing on the edge of a, I have no idea how tall this building was. You know, it's definitely a high rise. So even let's call it a high rise standard at 70 feet. A 70 foot fall onto the sidewalk below is going to kill you. So when I go into the burning building to get the baby, I got to follow a little bit of procedure. But when I get up to the scaffold call, I can stand at the edge of the building and look straight down. And a lot of you be saying, well, no, you're not allowed. Once again, been doing this for a few decades 
And it's very rare to see a fire department that first shows up on scene or an industrial team or a military team and rigs fall protection lines first to look at that edge. And like I said, is it good enough just to crawl to the edge, lay down and look over? I don't know. That's something you'll have to decide on your own. So we've got this risk assessment done now. And once again, there's a lot that goes into that risk assessment and there's a lot of conversation that can be had around there. In our general IAP on the fire service, we now would determine the mode of operation. Based on the size up, they're going to decide whether they go offensive or defensive or whatnot. Generally, in a rescue situation, it's going to be an offensive type thing. This is not always true, though. If that person is already dead, how offensive do I need to be? I need to get them down. However, how many people do I really need to risk in this case to do that? Is there another method that I can choose that's not going to put people into harm's way, expose people to critical incidents, damage equipment? Because now time, I've got all the time in the world. They're not going to get any debt or being there any longer. You know, you know, apologize for the crassness of the conversation. The people that work in this industry, though, you're not going to kill them twice. So we are generally going to be more in that offensive rescue, go get the mode. But we do, as that incident commander or the person that's writing this IAP, that operations officer, have to make that decision and go, no, this is a recovery. We need to slow this down. Maybe you call that defensive in the rescue world. But yeah, it's the recovery mode versus the rescue mode. So we have to decide which mode of operation we're going to go into. Recovery, rescue, and it might also be a stabilization mode. We may have to stabilize an incident and it may not require rescue of anybody, just the stabilization of that incident. We get this in things where we start crossing disciplines, for instance, hazmat and confined space. If we have something leaking inside of a ship at a port, hypothetically, of course, and we have to go in and do a hazmat entry into that confined space, we're going to need confined space rescue and trained people as part of that. And it may not be for any rescue at all. It may be for straight incident stabilization and property conservation. Once again, we're probably able to slow that down a little bit as opposed to a live rescue, maybe not slow it down too much depending on what chemicals or what is leaking out of there. But once again, that could be a mode of operation that we're looking at as part of that rescue team. So generally, we're talking rescue, recovery, or stabilization of an incident. So with that, once we've decided our goals of that, inc- or sorry, our mode of operation, we're going to look at the incident goals. So what goals are there? And once again, this follows right back into those priorities. And if you can keep those in mind when you're doing this, life safety, incident stabilization, property conservation, you can't go wrong. And, you know, speaking from a North American viewpoint and a North American audience, that kind of means you can't get sued. I mean, you can get sued, but generally you're going to win. In Europe, where they don't sue quite as readily as they sue in the North Americas, then, you know, this is obviously going to be a bit of a different play. 
So you want to set your goals. And this is going to be starting to get into your strategies and your tactics at this point. So your goals, your big overall strategies, what do we need to do? So for our incident that we're talking about in Edmonton, we need to stabilize the swing stage. We need to rescue two people. We need to get them to the ground. Those would be some, you know, fairly large goals for that incident. Now the tactics you're going to determine in order to do those goals. Pretty self-explanatory. Maybe we're going to repel two rescuers over on their own lines on either side to secure the swing stage or to attach ropes so we can tie it off on the ground. You know, we're going to lower someone on a twin tension rope system with a, you know, a basket or with a B suit or whatever the SOP is in your department to pick that person off that's hanging from their dorsal D. We're going to triage the situation and to ascertain if there's two workers, which one is worse than the other and rescue accordingly. So these are one of those things where you've got your checklist now, you can start going through it. So we set our strategies to accomplish those incident objectives. So once again, the incident goals gives us our tactical objectives and our tactical objectives give us our incident strategies. Now with this, you kind of look and you go, all right, how do we do this? I've got my regular board that I might run for a house fire with my, you know, ReCVCOS on the back of it kind of thing. And it's not really set up for doing rescue. So I know a lot of departments around the world have gone to what's called the five paragraph order, the five paragraph field order. It's basically a military orders summary. I've seen it used in Europe. I've seen it used in the army when I was in the military. I've seen it used in the States in the fire service. I've seen it used all over. And it's basically, some people call it SMEAC or SMAC. Um, it's S-M-E-A-C. S stands for your situation. M stands for your mission. E stands for the execution. A stands for the administration or in logistics. And C stands for the command and signals. Now, why do we need some sort of orders format? Unlike a structure fire where our strategies and tactics lead us to, you know, engine two, get with your captain, you guys are going to be fire attack, you're going to be moving from Alpha to Charlie with an inch and a half and, you know, containing the fire. We now need to give these commands and these decisions to a group of people and we could do it similarly to that where we do what's commonly referred in the fire services, think, or yeah, think, plan, act. Um, Or we can look at something more like this kind of, you know, formal order structure that can still be done fairly quickly. Now, the reason I bring that up is in Europe, and we've translated it from Europe, they do an order structure that's fairly similar to that. They have it out on a board, and we're looking at maybe trying to implement a board like this, where it is basically your incident action planning board for your technical rescue event. And on this board, we have things, you know, much like we have on another one, the date, the location, the situation, things like type of terrain. Are we in low angle? Are we in high angle? A brief description of that terrain. And I would say you want the description to include hazards. Because that's what you're more concerned about. Are we steep? 
or are we vertical and what hazards are we going to have? We have loose rock. Do we have shrubs? Do we have glass we can break? Do we have overhanging balconies? Things that are going to interfere with us. On this board that's used, they use a piece of paper. I use the term board because that's what we use primarily here. We also have the number of patients, the patient's situation. So we'll back to our case. You know, person's fallen off, 911's been called. We roll out with a technical rescue team. Quite feasibly, 10, 12, 13, 15 minutes have passed. Patient situation definitely has to think about things like harness to do pathology. As the incident commander, this needs to be tweaking you, much like when somebody's saying, I got victims trapped in a structure fire, I need an ambulance on scene. This needs to be tweaking you the same way, and you're probably going to need an ALS response in order to start pushing certain types of drugs when we get that patient to the ground. So, you know, is the patient on rope or off rope? Ambulatory, non-ambulatory. You know, other resources on scene that we just talked about. And then on this board, put down some specific risks that are in your first due area and do with technical rescue. What's the weather? You look at that Edmonton call, wind, obviously a huge factor. You know, worst thing that happens, it starts raining or snowing. That's obviously going to affect performance of equipment and the personnel that are on scene. Snow, ice, rain, heat, lighting, is it light, is it dark? Falling objects, the atmosphere in a confined space, flammabilities, things like trench, We've got stuff moving around outside the trench, you know, vehicles, heavy equipment that's going to collapse that more. Same as, you know, structural collapse, utilities, you know, heavy machinery operating around the outside. These are the specific risks that you want to identify. As we said just before, part of your incident action plan includes that risk assessment portion. So next column over is objectives. Once again, we have goals. The goals here, and this is where that military orders kind of comes in because it's situation, mission, execution kind of gets in your goals, your strategies, and your tactics because the goals here are a little bit different and they might be a little bit more complex. We're moving from here to there. Identifying the end state of this is incredibly important. We need the confined space vented out and cleaned or we're going to go in on a SCBA or SAR and we're going to get that patient and we're going to bring them to this point here. And that might mean moving up, moving down, moving laterally, moving horizontally. It might mean doing a combination of those things. And that's why I say sometimes now a bit more of a formal order session might be in, you know, a better way to go. What is the commander's intention here. That's important to let your rescuers know because when they're inside that space trying to speak to you about the nuances of the rescue, they're going to need to have some freedom of action, which means they need to know the commander's intent. They need to know the end state. Underneath our goals, we have our strategies listed. Underneath our strategies, anybody want to guess? We have our tactics. Some of the other risk assessment and planning features that are on this board, rescuer access. 
Is the rescuer accessing the patient or the location on ropes? Are they climbing? Are they rappelling? Are they being lowered? Are they being raised? And those are all important things because it starts to get your equipment. As you can provide this briefing to trained rescuers, you're ascending rope. You're climbing a tower. You're rappelling in. These people start to know what they need to grab. Much like we don't generally tell Engine 2 on that structure fire what tools to take with them as they go in the door or what type of search to do or how to search. We don't do that in our rescue team either. Once we tell that person their objective and we tell them, hey, you know, I want you to rappel down here. I want you to secure this, you know, um, you know, climbers left of this swing stage. How that's accomplished is a lot up to that trained rescuer. Another item that's in here that's a bit different from our fire service analogy with our structure fire is patient packaging. How are we packaging that patient? That goes into talking about the end state of the call, but it's listed in here. Are we using a skid? Are we using a basket? Are we using an improvised harness? That's obviously going to impact what our main rescuer takes with them. Our lowering and our raising systems. What are we using? Twin tension, dedicated main, dedicated belay. What kind of hauling system are they going to create? Three to ones, five to ones, nine to ones, Z rigs, piggybacked fours, whatever the case may be. And then in the last columns, we have the execution. And you can kind of notice they even use the term, like I said, this is a uh, Belgian sheet actually is where we got it, which is based off the French group system, which is based in caving. Um, however, execution, and that's back where I talk about that more of a formal orders process. You have the firefighters or the rescuers listed, you have their roles and you have their tasks. This also starts to provide you with a little bit of accountability on scene because at least in North America, as the incident commander, I have to know where everybody is on my scene and what they're doing at any particular time. This helps provide that accountability for me. Now, we've stolen this straight out, stolen it from Mechelen Fire, uh, just south of Brussels. We're putting this into a command board of my fire department. We're playing with it right now, just tweaking it out between some of the technical rescue officers. Once it's done, I'll be happy to take a photo of it, probably blank out the fire department, throw it up on the social media so people could take a look at it. But generally, it's a little bit more than, you know, think, plan, act. It's not quite as much as a full five para orders set up, but we could certainly use things like you even see in here, situations listed on this sheet. Situation, mission, that's pretty much your objective. The next, like I said, um, column's called execution. I have the S, M, and E of my five para orders already. Admin, probably not a lot of admin logistics in a rescue unless you start getting into things like your structural collapse, your trench. Obviously then, that's going to start playing into it. As you give these orders out, and that's going to start filling into your incident command structure. You're going to have to start making planning. You're going to have to start making logistics to deal with these types of things. But generally, that allows you to be scalable in your incident. So that's certainly something that we're playing with and just wanted to pass that on to other people that are out there. So... 
before I ring off from this, you know, we talked about IEPs, we talked about incident stabilization, we talked about risk assessment. I'm going to backtrack a little bit and just read um, a blurb from one of our guys that does helicopter work. Now, single rope technique. I started listing them. Tactical. Rock climbing. So ACMG, AMAG, I believe it is in the States. What about rescue task forces? If we have a mass casualty incident due to a school shooting, for instance, and they're on the third floor and our only access is out the window, are we going to put two people on two lines? Or does the life safety make it more imperative just to get them on one line and get them out the window as fast as possible? Caving, single rope technique. Europeans, when they access patients, if they can leave their ropes from rubbing on objects and they'll do what we would consider rebelays or deviations to make that occur, they go single rope technique. Helicopter, single rope technique. Now back to what was said. Number one, helicopter. It's an engineered system. All components are listed on the STC certificate right down to the harness, inspected annually by an STC engineer. He goes on to say, in single rope technique, anytime the term SRT is used, the most important word is technique. This means system-specific actions and training to mitigate the human and equipment errors that would otherwise mitigate be mitigated with a double rope technique. Obviously, there's more inherent risk in any SRT system. But this is what I go back to now is I want you guys to think and girls to think about this out there. When we do our risk assessments, we generally in North America think two ropes right away. Is there any situations that you would run SRT. It would have to be a little bit more procedure heavy. It would have to be more trained. It would have to be more inspected, absolutely. But does it make sense in North America to look at what the Europeans are doing or are we doing it right and that they should be taking it from us? One other question to throw out there. We talk about safety We go, you know, system needs to be redundant. You know, we have to have two points of attachment. And this is generally North America I'm talking about. What is your comfort number with the braking system of your system, your braking point, your MBS of the system? Do you go to the slippage philosophy where it's like, hey, you know, the the clutch slips between 6 and 8 KN, so heck, I'm good with a 9 KN anchor because she's just going to slip anyways. Or do you want some factor of safety put in there? You look at the EMBC stuff that Kirk Mothner and company did, 20 KN is what they're saying. You go to NFPA, 40 KN now for a rope or an anchor. What do you feel is the best? And I'd really like to hear back from people on this, whether it be dropping us you know, a direct message on one of the social medias, throwing us an email, making a comment right on the, the uh, sorry, the podcast, whatever. Those are the two things I want you to take home and I want you to think about, I want to get back to you or you to get back to us. SRT 
and what is the MBS you'd want to see in your system. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll have another one of these out soon.